Hey, do you ever, uh, do you ever feel like the internet is listening to you? That through all our devices, our cameras, even now your doorbell, you know, they're watching, they're listening to you? I do. Like you're having a conversation, soon after that you get an email advertisement or something pops up on your social media about that exact thing that you were just talking about. Does that ever happen to you? I'm sure. It just feels so weird. Last Sunday I started our new uh, message series on faith in this age of anxiety. Monday morning, the very first email I opened, it's a daily post I get from the Harvard Business Review, and what was it about? Anxiety in the workplace, you know? So that would make me even feel more anxious because, you know, big brother Google is actually listening to me or something like that. Or maybe the email showed up because we've hit on a really important pervasive topic, something that affects just about everybody we know, including the people where we work. Be honest, I mean, how much of your anxiety is related to the worry and stress that you have with, because of the people that you work with? Probably quite a bit. In last week's message, I tried to do three things. And by the way, if you miss a Sunday, you can always go to our website or the Facebook page to watch the sermon video. You can always download the sermon text. And cop, printed copies of the sermon are always available on Sundays downstairs in the main lobby or down by the sanctuary. But the three things from last week, first, just to define anxiety and how it's a little bit different than fear. Fear sees a real threat. Anxiety imagines one. Anxiety imagines all the negative possibilities, locks in on all the what-ifs of life. What if this happens? What if that happens? And then the mind starts to downward spiral and you just can't shut it off because anxiety imagines a negative future. The second thing is that everybody struggles with anxiety to one degree or another. Everybody does. It's just part of the age that we live in, so there's no shame in feeling anxious. Being anxious is not a sin. It's an emotion, sort of like anger. Remember the Apostle Paul talks about anger in Ephesians 4. He says, be angry but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So he says it's possible to be angry without sinning. So anger is an emotion. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that, but left unchecked, it can lead you into some bad places. Same thing with anxiety. It's an emotion. Emotions are not sins, okay? So being anxious, it's not a sin, but it can lead us into behaviors that are ungodly or make us uh, kind of go in the wrong direction. The key thing is looking at how do we reduce the amount of anxiety that we're feeling? How do we better cope with these fears and stresses and thoughts that lead us towards this mental whirlwind called anxiety? And that leads us to the third point of last week, which was we can change. We don't have to be the same person we were yesterday. Through the grace of Christ and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, we have the, new, the tools to change. We don't have to react to the same circumstances the way we did before. We can change through Christ. But that change has to begin in our thoughts. Anxiety has to do with the imagination and all the negative scenarios that can bombard our brains. We start to think everything's going to be a catastrophe. We anticipate the worst possible outcome. But friends, that's all in our heads, so that's where the battle has to be fought, in our thoughts. And we do that by reminding ourselves of God's truth, that God's truth is the antidote for anxiety. So we've got to inject God's positive promises into our thoughts We've got to think bigger about who God is because otherwise your problems will become bigger than your God and that's when you're in trouble. The best way to keep God big in your mind is through memorizing scripture, memorizing God's truth so that you can instantly bring it into the battle that's going on in your head. 
Use the power of Scripture to interrupt that normal pattern that kind of leads you down the, pa- the path towards deeper anxiety. And last week we identified a great passage to be our guide in this, and I'm challenging us all to memorize this passage so that you've got it in your head. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. So let's read it together, either off the back of your bulletin or off the screen above. Let's read together. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So that's a great passage. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be breaking that passage down into four parts and looking at each of the parts individually using uh, Max Lucado's little acronym uh, from his book, Less Fret and More Faith, that we mentioned last week. Um, And if you didn't get a copy uh, last week, there are some available. There's a limited supply available right behind you near where the coffee is. We'd love for you to pick one up. Or if you want to just order it yourself, you can do that too. The acronym that he uses is simply the word CALM, which stands for um, Celebrate, Ask, Leave, and Meditate. Each word is tied to a portion of that passage from Philippians 4. And today we're just going to focus on the letter C, the celebrate, which is connected to verses 4 and 5. So you know the best way to memorize anything is to break it down into parts uh, and memorize it that way. So just this week, make it your goal just to memorize verses 4 and 5, not the whole thing. Just do verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So what are we rejoicing over? What are we supposed to be celebrating? The Lord is near. The nearness of the Lord. That's why this is so significant that Paul begins his antidote for anxiety with emphasizing the importance of the nearness of the Lord. In order to understand why this is so important, we need to know a little bit about Paul and his circumstances and why he was writing to this ancient Greek city of Philippi. See, Paul felt a special bond with the Christians in Philippi because he had visited there many times on his missionary journeys and they had been one of his main supporters in terms of spiritual, emotional, and financial support. And now it's about the year 61 AD. Paul is under house arrest in Rome awaiting trial before the Roman emperor. It's not the first hardship he's ever had to face because of his faith in Christ. Listen to how Paul describes sort of his life when people started to question, you know, his credentials, like, does this guy really deserve to be an apostle? Let me read it for us. It says, I know I sound like a madman, but I have served Christ for more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. 
I face danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I face danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I face danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. That's from 2 Corinthians 11. Doesn't sound like a very fun job, does it? I mean, if there's anybody out there who ought to be paralyzed with anxiety, it ought to be the Apostle Paul. If there's anybody who should be a poster child for post-traumatic stress, it ought to be Paul. Uh, with all that he has gone through, all the terrible things that have happened to him, he ought to be a nervous wreck, but he's not. In all the circumstances of life, they've been far from ideal, but his sense of joy was not dependent on his circumstances. His joy was based on the nearness of Christ, and that's what we need to learn from him. All the physical pain he endured, all the discomfort, the lack of sleep, the lack of food, adrift alone in the Mediterranean Sea for 24 hours. I mean, just imagine that. You're out fishing off the Atlantic or the Jersey Shore. Your boat springs a leak and down you sink. All of a sudden, you're alone in the cold ocean for 24 hours doing the dog paddle, hoping that your life preserver lasts, hoping that the Coast Guard's on its way. Paul didn't even have that, maybe a piece of debris to cling to. And on dry land, he's got to worry about robbers and all kinds of miscreants. Boy, does he need a new travel agent, you know? And we get all stressed out when our plane is delayed by 45 minutes or when we go to the hotel and there isn't a mint on the pillow. But even more than all the physical trials that Paul endured, the last line of that passage is what really counts. It says, besides all this, I have the daily burden of the concern for all the churches. Okay? He's the apostle. He's the guy. He's the emissary to the entire Gentile world. I mean, it's all on his shoulders to spread the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire. That's God's big call on his life. And you'd think, if that's such an important job, you'd think God would make it easier. I mean, he's working for the Lord. His ship shouldn't sink. His sleep ought to be undisturbed. God should take care of all that stuff for him. His team should function properly without any personality clashes, you know. He shouldn't have to worry about budgets and funding and where he's going to have his next meal. If God wanted him to succeed in spreading the gospel, then why wouldn't it just kind of make sense that God should just make it easier on him? Plow the road, fill in the potholes. Paul's circumstances, his surroundings, everything should just fall into place easy peasy. But it doesn't work like that. Nothing but problems and setbacks. And what do we get from Paul? Not one word of complaint. Never shakes a fist at God. Never devolves into a pity party. Never hear him say, why me? No, he rejoices in Christ. He celebrates Christ and he calls on his readers and us to do the same. Celebrate, rejoice. The verb that he uses here in verse 4 is in what's called the present perfect tense, which means for all us non-English teacher, grammar teachers, it means something that started in the past and continues on into the future. A more liberal, uh, literal translation would be keep on rejoicing. It's a continuing attitude with no expiration date. Keep on rejoicing. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your fears, your anxious thoughts, keep on rejoicing. Now, I could warm up to this idea a little bit easier if, if Paul had said, rejoice, you know, two days a week. You know, that I could handle. Rejoice some of the time. 
maybe Wednesday and Friday. I could rejoice then because it's hump day and then Friday you're getting ready for the weekend. That would be a lot easier to cope with. But he says, rejoice always. And then he repeats himself. himself. He says, I say it again, rejoice. Paul is emphatic about this. In fact, this is so uppermost in his mind that joy becomes one of the main themes of the entire book of Philippians. He says joy or rejoice 15 times in this short little book. That shows you how important this is to him. The nearness of the Lord. How does that truth become an antidote for anxiety? It's because anxiety springs from our need to control the world around us. We want to be able to predict the future, to make sure that the only outcomes that happen are the ones that we want. Whether it's our family, our health, our jobs, our church, whatever, we have a picture in our minds of how things ought to be, how we want things to be. And we always want the happy ending. We want all the pieces to fall together exactly as we desire. But then we bump up against this world where that doesn't always happen. Instead of a world where we can accurately predict and control the future, what we see is a world that always seems to be bordering on chaos, where we can't control what's happening. And the more you feel like you're just the victim of unseen forces, that life is unpredictable and random, that somebody else is pulling your strings, the more anxiety is going to win in your heart. If you feel like you're just a ping pong ball, that the forces of the universe are knocking around, then anxiety is going to win the battle for your brain. How many things come down to us just trying to control the universe and the universe does not cooperate? How often are we anxious because the world doesn't bend to our will? It's frustrating to realize we are not in control of the universe. And bad things do happen to good people. The health fanatic who gets cancer, the high-performing employee who loses his job in a corporate restructure. There's a harsh reality out there that the more we try to control the people and the events and things around us, that's when we get the most anxious and the most stressed out. I mean, the most anxious people tend to be those who are control freaks because it's hard to embrace the reality that we are not in control of the universe. That sense of inner peace that Paul's talking about, it didn't come because of a lack of problems. Peace won't come because our problems disappear, but because of the presence of our sovereign Lord. What Paul wanted his readers to know, what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us today, is that a proper understanding of God's sovereignty over life is at the core of this antidote for anxiety. God's sovereignty, which means God's perfect control and management of the universe. That's his job, not yours, not mine. God governs, God preserves, God has allowed for sin and death to exist in this world. And we can argue with him about whether or not that was a good decision, but that's the reality that we live in. So things will not always work the way we think they should. Entropy is everywhere. There is evil. There is suffering. People make bad decisions that that unfairly impact the lives of other innocents. There is corruption and decay. Things do fall apart. Your body will run down eventually. And yet somehow all of that is still contained within the sovereign power of the Lord. God is working out his ultimate plan. And Paul had this understanding, kind of just this gut length, gut level understanding that everything would be okay because ultimately he would be before the Lord. The unseen hand of God was behind all things and nothing is a surprise to God. Might have been a surprise to him, might be a surprise to us, but nothing is a surprise to 
to God, and he is a God of love who has promised to see us all the way through to the end. Because of that confidence, Paul says there's a deeper joy that we can have that's not dependent on our circumstances. The idea of God's sovereign power is captured so well in Psalm 46. Let me just read a few verses. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and mountains quake with their surging. surging. The sovereign God is a refuge and a strength. Think of that word refuge, a place of safety, a fortress, a shelter, a place of protection. All these wonderful images with this sense of safety that we can have when we look to God as the sovereign one who rules over all. He's our refuge, and because we can trust in the God of love to run the universe, we have a sense of safety even when our life is tough and the winds are high. It's a place where we can retreat and recover and find healing and rest. God is a refuge, but God is also a strength. Strength, I mean, you don't need strength as long as you stay in the safety of the fortress, as long as you never venture out. Inside the refuge of God, you're perfectly protected. But that's not really where we're designed to live, walled up inside this impenetrable fortress. It's tempting to want to live that way, kind of walled off from all the problems of the world, but that is not Christ's way. If we stay inside the refuge too long, we become soft and feeble because Christ calls us to join him in the battle. At some point, we have to venture outside the refuge into this world with all its problems. But the Lord also promises strength for the battle. Our refuge and our strength, and we need both. Healthy Christians have a balance of both. God is their refuge, but God also as their strength. The courage to venture out into that real world with the strength of Christ. That's the key. Stabilize your soul with the sovereignty of God. You know, there's an inverse relationship between your understanding of the sovereignty of God and your anxiety. As your confidence in the sovereignty of God goes up, your anxiety level is going to go down. As your confidence in the sovereignty of God goes up, your anxiety is going to go down. Because God's answer for anxiety is this. There's somebody sitting on the throne of the universe, and it's not you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give us a practical way to remember the sovereignty of God over your life this week. It's a simple mental exercise that you can do whenever you start to feel anxious or worried, and it unusually comes from the world of church architecture. Over the centuries, there's a wide spectrum of ways Christians have approached, you know, what's the right architecture for worshiping the Lord? In more formal, sacramental, liturgical churches, you might have grand cathedrals with flying arches and ornate windows and stained glass and artistry, all that sort of emphasize the grandeur of God. If you've ever been to Europe or you've toured the grand cathedrals, you've seen that. On the other end of the spectrum, you might get modern, informal churches that meet in a warehouse with no religious symbolism at all. It's a concert stage, pure and simple, uh, kind of just copies the music venue of the secular world, no ornamentation except laser lights and fog machines. Or think of the Puritan farmers who founded this church and built the sanctuary down the hall with no stained glass, a very plain style called a meeting house style because it emphasizes the preaching of the Word of God. So lots of variety in how Christians have created space to worship the Lord. In the Greek, Russian, and Coptic Orthodox churches, the shape of the building 
matters a lot. It's always in the shape of a cross. The bottom of the cross is called the narthex, and that connects the church to the outside world. Then the main beam of the cross is called the nave, and that's where the congregation stands during worship. Where the two beams of the cross meet, that's where the altar would be. And what I want you to focus in on is what is above the altar at the intersection of the two beams of the cross. There's a dome in the ceiling. In the dome, there's a mosaic or a painting of Jesus, but a special kind of painting, an artistic representation called an icon. Icons are two-dimensional works of art, meaning that the figures are all flat. They look like they've literally been run over with a steamroller. And they did that because there was a belief that three-dimensional artistic representations might be turned into idols, you know, like a statue. People might start to worship a statue. So someone decided two-dimensional, the look was okay, you know, go figure that. But the representation of Jesus in the dome over the altar has a special name. And this is what I want you to remember. Its name is the Christus Pantocrator. Christus Pantocrator. It means Christ the Almighty. And in almost all cases, the representations of the Christus Pantocrator, you'll see Jesus and his fingers are kind of in an unusual way. Sort of like this with his thumb and ring finger touching of his right hand and the four fingers of his left hand either down or up or somewhere like this. It looks like Jesus is throwing up gang signs or something like that. And that's not far from the truth because hand positions were symbolic of different letters. And so if, like you're using sign language with people today. The position of the right hand was the first letter for the word Jesus. The position of the left hand was the first letter of the word Christ. So Jesus is kind of throwing up his own name because his name is above every name. He's putting it out there because he's the Christus Panacrator, the Christ Almighty. It represents the risen and reigning Lord Jesus in heaven in all his majestic and sovereign power looking down over the universe below. Jesus is looking down from his place of exaltation in heaven, looking down on all the chaos and all the confusion, all the pain and all the suffering of the world, and he's saying, in effect, I've got this. I've got this. I am above all things, and my name is above all names. My power is greater than your problems. My presence is preeminent. My purpose will prevail. My authority is commanding. I rule over all, and you can trust me. I am the antidote for anxiety. So stabilize your soul with the sovereignty of Christ Almighty. And this is what I want you to do this week, especially if you're like me and you wake up in the middle of the night and all your mind starts to fill with your worries. I want you to use your imagination. If you're anxious, you're already using your imagination, but negatively. You're imagining a negative future. What I want you to do is to use your imagination positively. Visualize yourself in that cross-shaped sanctuary. Imagine you're lying on your back right where the center of those two beams meet, right where you can look up and see the dome above you. And so you see Christ highly exalted. You see the Christus Pantocrator, the Christ Almighty, and he is sovereign over your life. You see the eyes and the face of Christ looking down over your life, and then hear him say to you, I've got this. Don't worry about tomorrow. I am already there. I am your refuge, and I am your strength. I am Christ Almighty. So instead of using your imagination to create negative thoughts about your future, use your imagination to bring God's truth into your mind. 
A proper understanding of God's sovereignty over your life is the antidote for anxiety. So focus your thoughts on the supremacy of Christ. Look up. See Christ ruling over all. And then recite what you're memorizing from Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is near. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are Christ the Almighty. Sometimes we diminish you. We think of you just in your earthly form, and as powerful as that is, we sometimes diminish who you really are, and we need to see you high and lifted up and exalted in all your glory, ruling over the entire universe. And Lord, if you can handle that job, you can handle my life. You can handle the lives of everyone here. Help us to look up, to see you exalted, and to hear your words I've got this. Help us to know we don't have to be worried and anxious for tomorrow because you're already there and you are our refuge and our strength. It's in your name we pray, amen.